Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I'm Sam Ashurst, I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a podcast human. And I'm normally joined by Dan Martin, special effects artist extraordinaire. However, Dan is off doing special effects somewhere, could be anywhere in the world, and he, he can't quite make it to talk about Legend, a film that he would hate anyway, so that's probably for the best. Uh, instead, I am joined by my lovely co-host... Shay Mossafin, and I am a podcast human as well and a VHS distributor. And that label is Black Widow, and uh, I urge everyone to check out the movies on Black Widow. There's some amazing stuff in there, but we're not here to talk about Black Widow. <laughs> we're here to talk about Ridley Scott's Legend. Now, this is a film that Shay and I both saw as children. I suspect I saw it more than Shay. You, mm. how many times did you watch it? Just a few times. Yeah. yeah, not much. Whereas this was one that I watched over and over again. I was in a situation when I was younger where I had two movies to choose from on VHS uh, at that time. The two movies I had to choose between were Legend, obviously, or I wouldn't be saying this, and uh, Uncle Buck. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Uncle Buck is a masterpiece. That's amazing. Um, and Legend, I thought at the time, when I was a child, I thought Legend was also a masterpiece. Mm. However, revisiting it 30 years later, mm. I don't have quite the same feelings, unfortunately. But we'll get on to that. Um, Shay, what were your thoughts about this movie? Because obviously you're an American, I'm a European. Yes, so we've yes. got different perspectives on the different cuts. I saw the Tangerine Dream cut as a kiddo, and you saw the Jerry Goldsmith cut. That's right. Which normally movies are not defined by their soundtracks, but this is one where you know what you saw based on what you were hearing. (laughs) Yeah. And this version that I saw, that many of you have maybe seen, is a bit more dark. It starts off with a scene right out of the gate that looks like something on the cover of a Mortician album. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very disturbing. There's some dismemberment going on and consumption of little goblins by a dark lord and interwoven with these really beautiful peak moments that feel like they're just woven together almost without any real narrative cohesion at first. You're just seeing imagery and you know, the bit of a hint of good and evil about to collide, but it was very disturbing. It really bothered me as a kid, but at the same time, I found it really intriguing, I guess in a, in a childlike way, understanding that there are things in the world that are dark and evil in the way that you experience reading Grimm's fairy tales. And I was fascinated by that, by the darkness of it. Well, what's really interesting, and this actually might explain my disappointment, because so the way we did it, because we wanted to watch as much as possible on this disc, we watched the American version mm-hmm. in full. So it was a different one to the one I remember. It, in my version, it, it opens with this really weird kind of mushroom-shaped window looking out into space, very atmospheric and cool. Oh, yeah. And none of the murder and mutilation that um, we, we saw in this one. And actually, I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is excellent. But I think the music made a, a much, much bigger difference than I realised to my enjoyment of this revisit, potentially. Oh, yeah. Because I was really kind of getting into the Jerry Goldsmith version that we watched with the commentary. So we watched yeah. that with Ridley Scott's commentary. It is hilarious it and is. insane. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, he's... I, I love Ridley. I've interviewed him a few times, and there's lots of Ridley goodness on this disc. It's a wonderful documentary, uh, the making of legend... 
which features some very classic Ridley Scott moments. So um, many. Would you like to highlight a couple, Shay? Oh, I'd love to. He was talking about making uh, darkness sexy. <laughs> so to make him sexy, he wanted to turn him into a goat man. Yeah. Yeah. We developed a theory that um, old Ridders might be a fairy. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's the cat thing too. Right? Yeah. So again, it, when they were conceiving the project, Ridley had a suggestion that the princess, as she gets more corrupted by darkness and gets sexier, she should turn into a cat. Yes. Um, uh, with a woman's body uh-huh. and a cat's head. A cat head. He's very specific about this. Right. Um, unfortunately, you know, saner voices prevailed and yeah. someone said, that's going to be, quote unquote, too expensive, Ridley. <laughs> yeah, he needed more money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Shay, please tell this story. Oh, sure. So he felt like he needed more of a budget, and it was $25 million as it was, correct? Correct. In that area. So the budget led to how many metric tons of, of soil, water, glitter, <laughs> uh, artificial snow, mm-hmm. so much glitter. Mm-hmm. I said a lot of glitter, but I mean, like, Tom Cruise is probably still picking glitter out of his teeth like to this day and a lot of of flammable gas over time the fumes collected in the the roof of the building of the bond stage one of the largest sound stages in the world and it caught on fire and burned down the whole thing burned down he burned the whole thing down and ridley's reaction to this was to basically shrug And go and play tennis. He played tennis. Because there was nothing else he could do. Uh-huh. And yeah, we're, it may sound like we're spoiling a lot of the best moments from these extras, but we're really not. There's just so, so many of these kinds of weird and wonderful stories. The Ridley Grams. Oh God, the Ridley Grams. <laughs> <laughs> we need to start a company called Ridley Graham and send people post-its that say more leaves. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So um, just for context, basically, the writer talked about how Ridley would just suddenly stop during a conversation and start drawing ideas uh, on, I think, post-its or something Mm -hmm. like that. Little pieces of paper. Little pieces of paper. And uh, Ridley Scott titled these creations Ridley Grams. Yes. This is a wonderful, wonderful, entertaining disc. If you love um, TV shows like The Office, then I think you'll... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, an office vibe for sure. You'll find a lot to enjoy here. Well, something else about Ridley that I didn't really grasp was how obsessed he was with his vision for this movie. He really got into the the headspace that very few directors get into when they get completely overwhelmed with a vision. Like Herzog with Fitzcarraldo or even Tinto Brass with Caligula where you have these enormous sets that have to be filled. And... He absolutely did not want to film outside because he had no control over the lighting or the wind. He wanted everything in his grasp. And it creates this almost dreamlike environment where like every shot looks like a fantasy poster. In the 80s, you go to Walmart and get a poster of a unicorn. Like that is what he created. It's a wedge from reality, which if that's your thing, if you're into fantasy, this is going to be a, a dream come true for you. But if that's not your jam, you might be a little bit, okay, what's going on here? You know, what, 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 what am I seeing? He creates this world that feels completely encapsulated and shielded from time. Like you mm. don't know, is this in the future? Is it in the past? And you don't even really know if it's on 
planet Earth. Like, are we on a different planet somewhere where all, all this is completely normal? So it's, it's grandiose on a scale that feels completely impossible today because I can't think of a director in their right mind deciding to do everything the way that Ridley did it because we have technology for creating a dreamlike, almost kind of infrared film look in the real world without using infrared film. And I don't think he used any infrared in this movie, but it's so soft. You can tell that the snow is artificial and that the creek is indoors, but it just looks completely otherworldly. And you're never going to get that again. You're never going to see a movie made like Legend ever again. Absolutely. And it's very interesting what you say about the softness. I, I think, yeah, he mentions on the commentary that they used anamorphic lenses and um, the glitter really, really reacted beautifully to that you mentioned the glitter before but there are some shots where it looks like there are lights buried in the snow but yeah. it's actually just the lens reacting to the glitter yeah the reflection um we should also mention the bubbles we should mention the bubbles yeah because it's one of those wonderful commentaries where <laughs> where it's almost like Ridley's in the room listening to you asking questions because Shay did raise the the question about why are there so many bubbles um, in this right. movie several times yeah and he, he did say I, I feel maybe the bubbles were a mistake <laughs> he did at but, one point the little um oh I forget the character's name uh, the character from, who played the lead in the tin drum oh yeah what's his name Pud or Pud <laughs> no no it's it's oh it's a uh, Gimp Gump Gump Bring out the gimp. Bring, bring out, out the gump. Bring out the gump. And uh, whenever the gump comes out, the bubbles come out. Yes. And <laughs> I think Ridley barked out an order, the gump needs bubbles. <laughs> and uh, then, he, it, because he thought it would make it more magical, but uh, he, yeah. he regrets it now. And regret is kind of a weird theme of this whole project. I, I feel like everything that you just said about how obsessed he was with the vision, um, I think he went into a zone with it and then started to doubt himself because yeah, totally. he had a couple of test screenings and he says that he smelled pot in both of these test screenings and they were giggling and making fun of the dialogue or whatever. And even though he kind of writes off those reactions as basically the idiot thoughts of stoners, it affected him. This mm -hmm. reaction affected him. And I think maybe he made himself a little bit vulnerable with the very first cut of this film because he decided it was too soppy, too sentimental, and that's when he ripped out Jerry Goldsmith's incredible score. This was a score that Goldsmith was very proud of. He thought it was his best up until that point, and it got ripped out, recut, and the Tangerine Dream, you know, mm -hmm. very emotionless, very kind of distant, very yeah, cold. more like tonalities rather than melodies. Exactly. So, yeah, this is a really interesting project. And we do have the director's cut on this disc and, and that American cut. But I wish that somewhere, someone could find the very, very first oh. test cut of this movie. Yeah. Because I think yeah. that would be the most special one of all. Legend was a departure from everything he'd done up to that point. And it was still very early in his career. And he had done, what was it? It was Blade Runner. He'd done The Duelists. The, du the Duelists. Alien. Alien. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. That's it. And that's it. What a run. Right? And then he goes into fantasy. Yeah. And this is a, a, not based on a story that he had conjured. He was working with an author who said he'd been throwing his fantasy story ideas into a basically a drawer. Mm -hmm. And 
I guess in the way that Star Wars paved the road for alien movies like Excalibur and mm-hmm. Conan the Barbarian came out and people are suddenly interested in fantasy, dark fantasy. And in the 80s, you get more of like a sword and sorcery kind of thing rather than sword and sandal. So like the Dungeons and Dragons universe that people were so fascinated with. And I wonder if Ridley went to himself, hmm, did I go in the wrong direction with this? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you go on a perfect run like that and you start to overthink things. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And perhaps he's thinking about his legacy. Perhaps he's thinking about his, you know, future career, even though he's made all of these bangers. It only takes one, you know, horrendous film to, to sink someone potentially though I think Legend was a bit of a flop and he, he wrote it out just fine. But yeah, that's really interesting. And Star Wars is kind of the origin point of all of this stuff mm-hmm. because it yeah. reinvigorated an interest in pulp stories. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you have the Conans kind of almost branching out from Star Wars's success. Absolutely. And then you have this kind of weird sidestep. And, you know, we are talking, or at least I'm talking a lot of shit about this film, but there's so much to love in it. Tim Curry is magnificent as oh, Darkness. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob Bottin's special effects, which, again, on this disc, there's a couple of featurettes about the creatures and creature design. Amazing. Beautiful stuff. He was fresh off the thing. Yeah. And he makes some of the best rubbery-looking but highly articulated creatures out there. Absolutely. Like, he's amazing. So much about Darkness in this film just blows my mind every time I see it because... Tim Curry does look like, uh, what they say, like 12 foot. <laughs> he does, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and Ridley's like talks about how Curry was kind of in the middle of this yeah. creation, like on stilts. and Stilts you and just, horns, yeah. And you just cannot tell. When you watch it, it feels like a real living, breathing creature. Yeah, and the horns were not nearly as heavy as they looked. Yeah. I guess they're pretty light. We should talk about the human performers a little bit. This was Mia Sarah's first movie yeah. and much younger than I realized when I watched it as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always thought she was in her 20s when she made this, but she was actually just 15, yeah. which is kind of incredible and also a little bit <laughs> creepy a in places. Iffy, yeah. And she was opposite Tom Cruise and uh, you might expect a, a teenage girl to have a crush on Tom Cruise, but uh, no, her heart was only for Ridley. She talks about that on this disc. She does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Tom, you know, I don't think this is his best performance. Like, his his charisma isn't quite there. He feels a little bit out of his depth, if I'm completely honest. Certainly revisiting it for this watch, I was a little bit disappointed uh, in, in his stuff. But everyone around... Cruise makes up for it. You know, Billy Barty is uh, a wonderful presence. I know you're a big Billy Barty fan, Shay. Oh, I love him. He's wonderful. I always love him. I love his voice. That voice, that voice. (laughs) I think we've kind of pretty much covered everything I wanted to cover. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, talk about before we move on? Oh, so there's this moment in the beginning where something happens to the unicorn. I immediately on this rewatch, not as a child, but on this rewatch went, oh, it's castration anxiety on behalf of darkness. Yeah. Losing his grip on the world and not having enough power. Mm. And I didn't really catch that until, of course, as an adult. Um, Also, the princess, although Mia Sarah does an amazing job, she's doe-eyed and innocent. Um, You can see that she's also struggling with her own 
battle of good and evil inside mm-hmm. of herself and she almost comes across as an antisocial person. Right. And yeah, she's yeah. She's very inconsistent. She's charming to her own ends. Mm. Um, she's pretty reckless. She's superior. She does what she wants. And she toys with Jack's devotion, with the throwing her ring away and saying, whoever gets that is going to have my hand. Yeah, it's really interesting to apply those kinds of psychological readings to fairy tales. And there's something in her performance as well. Maybe it's like a remnant from the original plan for the film where she was much more corrupted by darkness. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, these fairy tales do have people setting these completely unreasonable cruel tasks for the heroes they do um yeah yeah that's really interesting like all, all of these fairy tales and this is very much rooted in fairy tale they're all there to slowly guide children into the real world and to prepare them for the darkness to prepare them for the challenges mm-hmm. and, and prepare them for goth uh subculture because yeah. i learned what goth was from this movie as a kid i remember looking right. at people in goth makeup and clothing and thinking oh they're like uh the princess and legend if there are any super fans legend super fans listening to this i still think this movie is stunningly beautiful to look at those sets those trees the wilderness that they go through the snow it's all so beautiful and i think maybe the next time i'll watch this with and if i can find it with an isolated jerry goldsmith score so i can just listen to the music mm-hmm. and look at the pictures i think i'll be very happy this is a movie where you really see effort you yeah. know like it's not an effortless movie where it just seems like the director conjured it and channeled it this is something you see an incredible amount of thought mm. and artistry mm. and incredible vision yeah um and i really i think he knocked it out of the park i hope he isn't ashamed of it today because yeah. it's just a beautiful movie if you're listening to this, Ridley, please do not send us an angry Ridley Graham. Um, we, don't, <laughs> we, we don't want to see that. Let's move on to recommendations. I'm going to start, and I'm going to start with The Dark Crystal. Now, Legend is a fucked-up fairy tale with a really dark heart, and so is The Dark Crystal. It's got some of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a fantasy film, whether it's the podling being drained of his life essence, that is something that still haunts me, or the Skeksis strip scene, or the Skeksis death scene, there's just some really fucked up stuff in here. It's also an example of a creation of a totally fake environment, which looks and feels real. Uh, This was the first live action film to not feature a single human on screen, and you don't even notice really, the characters are so captivating, and the, the little dudes feel so real just like Tim Curry in Legend. Uh, Yeah, it's a great, great film. And if you haven't seen it, you're in for a pure, joyous experience, which will also really disturb you. So The Dark Crystal, I recommend it. Shay, what's first from you? Well, I would like to talk about a movie from 1982. And I talked a little bit about aliens and Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian. And, And in this time of the early 80s, If you were a young up-and-coming filmmaker, you wanted to try to sell a script to someone that had mass market appeal. And this young director from Hawaii named Albert Pune Hmm, (laughs) came into Hollywood with a couple of buddies 
and they had a fully storyboarded epic fantasy film called The Sword and the Sorcerer, and they pitched it to everybody in Hollywood, and nobody called them back. But uh, as dark fantasy started to become more of a thing, one guy called him back and said, do you still have that fully storyboarded script? <laughs> and Albert says, yes, and I need to direct it. So he sells this producer on him, who's never directed anything, taking on this very modestly low-budget movie, but pretty big for a first-time director. What you end up getting is a low-budget mashup of Michael Moorcock-styled shenanigans with all of the 80s tropes of the genre. Um, You get Richard Lynch performing as an evil king, and he summons a wretched underworld sorcerer, Um, from a puddle of red muck uh, to battle with this Elric-like warrior with a triple-bladed sword. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's basically the sleazy, lower-budget cousin of legend. (laughs) And it's really not for the kids, but it is for fans of dark fantasy and oily muscles. So... Highly recommended. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And one that is for the kids that I saw on the big screen on release. It's a movie that I have revisited in the year since and I love it every time. It is Labyrinth. Though, before I go into singing its praises, we should probably mention the unfortunate connection it has to legend which is we talked about the inappropriate age gap between Mia Sarah and Tim Curry so Mia Sarah was just 15 when she made legend well Jennifer Connelly was 14 when she made labyrinth oh my god Um, yeah you can't see Shay's face right now but (laughs) she is very shocked because yeah it, it makes David Bowie's Jareth's obsession with her very very inappropriately lusty Mm -hmm. um just as uh tim curry's darkness is inappropriate with mia sarah but that's not why i'm recommending it shay (laughs) (laughs) because that would be a pretty fucked up reason to recommend a movie no i'm just pointing out the fact that some really weird decisions were made when making 80s fantasy movies Um, But the reason to recommend Labyrinth is it's one of the best films ever made. Perfect grim fairy tale style premise, wonderful world building, which is mostly in a studio, and just stunning characters, especially the most Muppety guys. I love Labyrinth, and if you can make it past the insane age gap, you'll love it too. What's your final recommendation, Shay? Well, on the heels of Labyrinth, I cannot help but recommending The NeverEnding Story. Yes. I've seen this movie probably as many times as you've seen Legend. Mm -hmm. It's drilled into my mind. It's one of my earliest film memories. It actually might be the first movie I ever saw that wasn't a cartoon, like a Disney cartoon or a Looney Tunes. And uh, it's by Wolfgang Peterson. It features a young boy dealing with the loss of his, his mother and the grief of his father and the escapism that he was able to achieve by basically running away from the pressures of his teachers. His dad is expecting him to, you know, chin up and be a man about it. And instead, he he gets lost in a story. And in this story, imagination and hope is what keeps the story going. And it's really about his battle. And it personified into incredibly beautiful sets, fantastic creatures, weird monsters, darkness that I think was a little more palatable to me uh, in my young mind. I wasn't as terrified of Never Ending Story as I was Legend, although I love Gamork now as an adult, but I would always close my eyes <laughs> in the scene where uh, near the end. But 
The soundtrack is is stamped into my mind. It's one of my favorite soundtracks. It's Giorgio Moroder. The theme makes me happy every single time I hear it. And if you like dark fantasy and you have not seen this, please, please, please watch it. But be warned, there are some dark moments. There are some sad moments. But it all comes full circle. And if you can hang in there till the end, you'll be vindicated. Yes, absolutely. And this is a film that I was also obsessed with way more than Legend when I was a little kid. I watched it so, so many times to the extent that my sister, who is an author now, but she was writing even then. I think she must, I must have been around seven. She must have been around 14. And she started writing me letters from the Luck Dragon and she used like different colored um, pencils for each individual uh, letter within each word to make it feel more magical. And uh, she'd leave them under my pillow at night. Um, but unfortunately, uh, because you know I was uh, a logical seven-year-old, I was like, well, if the luck dragon exists, that also means that Gamork exists. <laughs> and if I'm getting these letters, then maybe Gamork's gonna come and uh, get me one night. So my sister had to stop writing me the letters and eventually she had to tell me that she was the one that had written the letters. And I think that story really sums up my personality um, quite well. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) Wake up tomorrow with the Ridley Graham under your (laughs) pillow. No! (laughs) Amazing. All right, let's move on to recommendations based on what we've been watching over the past couple of weeks. Shay... You're going to go first this time. Oh, great. Yeah. Sam, I would like to talk about Blowout. I'd never seen Blowout before. You showed it to me. You said it's going to blow my mind. My mind had a blowout. Yes. Watching Blowout. Oh, my God. So incredible. It might be one of my favorite movies of all time. Has absolutely exquisite storytelling. Um, Every shot is framed beautifully. The tracking, the sound design. This is a sound designer's wet dream can i say that on the podcast it's so uh, so amazing the acting from travolta from lithgow you can really see that he is a student of hitchcock here and you know it's somewhere between like vertigo and the conversation it's intriguing there's mystery it's basically an american giallo which is interesting because argento pulled so much influence from de palma Mm. and then we have de palma pulling influence from italian genre cinema it feels like a full circle Absolutely, uh, universe, yeah, yeah. and it's just beautifully done. I love the American Giallos, and this is definitely top of the list. Amazing! Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and that was a former Arrow release, but we watched it on the Criterion's uh, recent 4K UHD. Oh my God! Yeah, and Jesus Christ! It was honestly, it was like watching it on um, 35 millimeter film. It yeah. just the the grain was beautiful. The colors popped so much. It's one of the best 4Ks I think I've ever watched. You know, not including you, Arrow. You've got great 4Ks too. <laughs> but yeah, it was just such a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful experience. So good. And the ending, I think, is the biggest punchline in cinema history. There you go. Absolutely. So if you haven't watched Blowout, do watch it and uh, then listen to Mine and Dan's episode on it. It's one of our earliest episodes. What a movie. What a movie. All right. Well, I'm only going to do one this week as I also watched Shay's movies and my usual VHS Quest exclusive lineup. But if you want more recommendations from me, I now have a hundred recommendations over at VHS Quest and the link is in the bio of this episode. But yes, my uh, solitary recommendation for this week is one of my favorite Mike Lee movies. I rewatched it uh, after I got it in the Criterion Flash sale and it is Naked. 
Now, naked 100% wouldn't get made today. It's so nihilistic with one of the most unlikable protagonists in cinema history, who also happens to be totally charismatic and magnetic. David Fluis is truly magnificent. He really, really should have won an Oscar for this, especially as so much of the dialogue was improvised. But that would have required the Academy to peer deep into the abyss and they don't like doing that. So if you haven't seen it, it's basically a few days in the life of a pessimistic philosopher as he does damage to pretty much everyone he meets. I'm not sure what was going on in Mike Lee's life when he made it, but I hope he's all right now. Naked, it is a masterpiece, and the Criterion disc is fantastic. I really, really recommend Naked. Yeah, I really enjoyed Naked too. It was a first time watch for me. I'm so glad you picked it up. I'd only ever seen Secrets and Lies, and it was a completely different view of his of his style of filmmaking, where everyone seems to be improvising. Really amazing. I watched a movie called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and it's directed by Laura Poitras. It's a documentary. I think it's on HBO Max. It's about Nan Golden, a photographer who came up in the 70s and the 80s um, in metropolitan America, specifically New York. And her photography work is rooted in openness, ugly truths about beautiful people and beautiful truths about ugly people. And there's a lot more than meets the lens with her. She was pretty quintessential in the New York early punk rock days, uh, the no wave scene. She was good friends with Cookie Mueller, who made multiple movies with John Waters. I, she hung out with Basquiat. And she didn't do a lot with the Warhol scene, as far as I know. But the aesthetic of her photographs weren't really just a look that she was going for. They were a product of her environment, both in flash and in long exposure. And her pictures, I think, were really influential on American apparel ads in the right. early 2000s. Yeah, like yeah. That kind of look that, like, oh, you caught someone pulling their pants up in a dark room or and they're looking at the camera with the flash in their eyes that kind of uh, vulnerability what's really interesting about this documentary <clears throat> is its balance of looking at her as an artist and looking at what was influencing her art mm. she was cripplingly shy mm. she was grieving the loss of her sister her family's cover-up of what happened with her sister and if you really listen closely to her views on memory and the events that create them. And then you look at her photos, you have a completely different understanding of, of what was happening in her world mm -hmm. and, and, and what was filling in the frames between the frames that we get from Nan. And it really draws a parallel from the AIDS epidemic to the opioid epidemic today and the family that profits off of these opioids that are manufactured and, and are so devastating and, and, and lethal. So this is really a movie about grief and about loss from her sister to the AIDS epidemic to the opioid epidemic and highlights um, her activism in, in every way and in, in all of those ways. So I think it was beautifully done and I highly recommend it to, to really to anyone. I think it's, it's very well made and if you don't know who Nan Golden is, you're going to be glad that you did get to know her through this movie. Absolutely, this is one that Shay picked out for us to watch together and I'm so glad she did. Very, very powerful, really, really interesting exploration of art. The way it all kind of comes together, it's really, really fascinating. And Shay's right, yeah, one of the kind of most powerful elements is, and it does it quite subtly, but it shows us the, the AIDS epidemic that Nan lived through, all the friends she lost, and then in more modern times, it talks about her own addiction to opioids and all the families who have lost people to opioid addiction and 
you know, the way that the governments of the day ignored both. Nan is a voice, a modern voice, really raging against um, the opioid epidemic. And and using her, her influence to actually make a difference too. Exactly, yeah. So it's a really, really well-structured, fascinating, beautiful documentary. I really recommend that one too. All right, let's move on to extra features. We're not going to sing the song because Dan isn't here and that would be a disgrace. Dan, see you next time when we are going to be discussing The Vagrant on Blu-ray. So we'll go into the movie, go into the extras. That's going to be a lot of fun. So no more Shay for a while now. Dan's going to be back for the next uh, couple of months. But if you want to hear more from Shay, then I am doing a soft reboot of VHS Quest and Shay is going to be appearing on every single episode of VHS Quest from this That's point right. on. Yes. So um, <laughs> you can subscribe by either looking in the description of this episode or just going to my Twitter, which is at Sam Ashurst. I'll make sure that that's the top pin tweet. So if you want to hear more from me and Shay talking about weird movies, then please do subscribe to that. We've got some really weird ones coming up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some really good ones. Yeah, absolutely. Shay. How can people follow you on social media? People can find me on Instagram. It's at black underscore V-V-I-D-E-O. And I'm also on on Facebook, too. I'm also on Facebook. You can find me at Black Widio on Facebook. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye.